welcome to Redeemer Kingsville Sermon Series, taken from Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Kingsville, Maryland. You remember last week we saw that Jesus had called a few more disciples to his side. As John had introduced in the prologue, that one which was so full of grace and truth began to reveal that grace and truth to a, to a select few, a select number that came to him. And upon seeing him, could even declare that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Israel. You remember those were the words out of Nathaniel's lips. And in response to them, Jesus answered that even though Nathaniel had proclaimed rightly that he was, in fact, the Messiah, that his reign, his rule, the new creation that he would usher in by his incarnation in which the word had become flesh would so far exceed, so far surpass any expectations, even those that Nathaniel had uttered, that people would see the very face of God itself in him. They would see that ladder, that bridge, that means by which God himself, God Almighty, creator of all the universe, would be revealed to them. And that one in their midst, that very Jesus. And it is this Jesus that we find again at the beginning of chapter 2. It's no surprise to us, right? Jesus is the point and purpose of this gospel. So John will present him to us in various ways and fashions, but always in the mind that this Son of God has come to excite a new creation. And this one is now attending a wedding. You'll look in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Jesus is still in the Galilee. He goes to the city at Cana. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus is invited along with his disciples. Presumably, they knew the family. Whether that's bride or groom or both. We don't know exactly. But regardless, Jesus, his mother, his family are invited to participate along with Jesus' disciples, probably not the full roster of 12, as we would come to know them in the Gospels. Nonetheless, at the very least, the ones that have already been called. Andrew, Peter, Nathaniel, Philip, and then of course that unnamed disciple, who I've already mentioned is probably John himself. He will be the eyewitness. He will be the one who can testify to this first sign that Jesus will perform at this wedding. Now, a wedding in the ancient world, in ancient Palestine, was a significant celebration. They could last up to seven days. As a matter of fact, it was routine that they would. And during this celebration, as in other serious and significant celebrations in Jewish life, there would be wine served. But in this particular instance, there's not enough wine Because as a part of the celebration, when these libations would be passed around, you would expect for that provision of wine, which was paid for by the bridegroom, overseen by the master of ceremonies, who will be introduced later, you would expect that provision of wine to be abundant enough to last the entire seven days. Yes, this was a part. Can you imagine how much wine they would need? And it wasn't just any wine. It was fermented wine. In fact, some people, I mean, I don't want to belabor this point. In preparation for my own sermon, I listened to a few, and there are long discussions 
upon the difference between fermented wine, unfermented grape juice, and all the like. I won't belabor any of that. All I will say is that this state in the history of Jewish culture in Palestine, wine was fermented. Now, this is not grape juice. A significant part of their agricultural product and efforts went into viticulture, to the making of wine. And I don't know much about the whole cultivation or making of wine, but I know that back in this day, it would be very difficult to take the juice of the grape and not have it ferment in any way because they didn't have the type of refrigeration and preservation systems that we did. As a matter of fact, in Cana itself, in the Galilee, wine making was one of its key exports. They were expert winemakers. So it's understandable that in this town, in this region in which wine was cultivated, that they would have it there, and they should have it in abundance. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine going, for instance, to a wedding in which you have a cheesemaker who is being married? He's an expert cheesemaker. He comes from a family of cheesemakers. This region is known for making cheese. All of the guests arrive with the greatest hope and anticipation that what will be served at his wedding is cheese, and not just any cheese, but his own cheese, or cheese from his friends who are also expert cheesemakers. I mean, we could make it, the list could go on. Any type of profession for that person that when you would imagine that they would have colleagues and peers in that field who would be experts as well, and they would bring their trade, they would bring their wares. Remember, this isn't just an hour celebration. It's not just something they're trying to tick off the box and to get done to the honeymoon. I mean, when I, when I read this, honestly, that's what I can't, I can't believe, how they couldn't get that honeymoon started after seven days. That would seem to be torturous for me. But they had patience, they had patience, and they had self-control. But you would expect that their peers would come and that out of celebration and joy, they would bring the best of their craft. They would bring the best of what they did and they would offer it to the guests in celebration for this wedding of their friend and their loved one. So that paints a little bit more picture as to why when the wine runs out, Mary, who's never called Mary in John's Gospel, she's always ever called the mother of Jesus, comes to him and says, they have no more wine. For the average person, this would have been significant shame. The bridegroom was meant to have saved for years to be able to make plentiful provision for his guests and his attendees at his wedding. Wine was supposed to last. This was a significant part of that celebration. As a matter of fact, if any of the provisions ran out, such was the scar and the shame for being inhospitable that it said from various texts, rabbinical and others at this time, that you could go years being shamed and thought ill of because of your lack of diligence in providing for your guests and being hospitable. There are even public records where there was a consideration of the bridegroom as legally liable to lawsuit for failing to provide for his guests. Can you imagine that? Like, think of your own wedding. How many complaints did you get? We got a few, right? How many complaints did you get, right? The person would take those complaints and they'd go immediately to the civil magistrate and say, hey, I got, I, I got to take action against this individual, right? This wedding wasn't good enough, right? He's got, he's got to pay. And so this is why Mary goes to Jesus. This is a significant 
and serious problem. For us, it seems a little bit trite. Okay, so what? The wine ran out. You know, go get a Coke. Well, no, you know, that's not the case here. There's something more going on. There's significant shame and status at risk. So Jesus, Jesus' mother goes to him. And notice how she goes to him. She expects him to solve this problem. That says something, doesn't it? It doesn't say that Mary goes to the master of the feast. She doesn't go to Andrew or to Peter. She goes to Jesus. As a matter of fact, this might have been her normal recourse of affairs. We don't actually see Jesus' father, Joseph, mentioned after that account in Luke. When he's in the temple as a 12-year-old boy. After that, it's all Jesus' mother and his brothers and sisters. Joseph is not mentioned again. It could very well have been, there's a bit of speculation in this, it could very well have been that by this time, Joseph had passed away. Jesus himself would be known not only as the son of Joseph, the son of the carpenter, but he would actually receive the title, the carpenter, as the oldest son of Mary and Joseph. He probably inherited that business and with it, the responsibilities to provide for his family. When there was a problem, his widowed mother in their domestic life would come to him. There is a problem at this, at this wedding. Mary probably goes to Jesus with that same expectation. Can you imagine a more diligent son? I just think of all the shortcomings of my own sonship. But can you imagine a more diligent son than Jesus? You can imagine that every, everything that Jesus should have done as a son to provide for his mother, he did. And he didn't just do begrudgingly or half. Instead, he did it fully with joy and obedience and love, meeting and exceeding every expectation. So it's no wonder here that Mary goes to Jesus looking for a solution. There can be no better recourse. But notice Jesus' response to her. I translate, dear woman, that might be too generous. He says, dear woman, what does this concern of yours have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Much has been made of this as well. This is not disrespectful. I should just state that. For those who don't already know, Jesus is not using slang or some type of informal insult against his mother. He's not saying, hey lady, get out of my face. That's not what he's doing. This is a polite and expected response for any type of woman. It would be like from Southern culture. I'm told that Maryland is part of Southern culture. Is that correct? That is considered part of the South? Well, various people from various other parts of the South might contest that, I will say. But, you know, that's their problem, I suppose. So, when you come across somebody, or at least in the culture in which I grew up in, in kind of more deep Southern Florida, and you come across an elder woman, what you say to her when she asks you to do something, you say, yes, ma'am, right? You say, yes, ma'am. Well, this is something similar. It's like a ma'am. But when your mommy asks you to do something... When she comes along, you can say, yes, ma'am. But more regularly, when your mommy says, hey, come, can you do this for me, son? Or can you do this for me, daughter? What do you say? Yes, mommy. Yes, mom. You normally say something along those lines. That would actually be the expected response here. We would expect Jesus to use some more familiar, more regular term of endearment. But he doesn't. He actually uses a term that is quite 
removed and detached from his mother. He keeps her at arm's length. And his rebuff, not insult, but his rebuff, that length, only increases when he says, what does this concern of yours have to do with me? You see, Jesus is purposely setting up a boundary here between his mother. As I just described, she came to him with the expectation that her oldest son would meet the need of this couple as well, in that maybe she had some idea, having of course received the vision, of course knowing what was promised about her son, seeing him live that out day after day. Perhaps she did have an understanding that the Jesus she was approaching was not just Jesus' son, but Jesus' Messiah, Jesus' miracle worker. But Jesus leaves no ambiguity in his answer which one she must address in this situation. If he is to be Jesus, miracle worker, and Messiah in this instance, then Mary has to approach him that way. She can't go to her son in the way that she did when she held him as a babe, when she cradled him when he hurt his knee, when he cried in his adolescence for various ways. She couldn't go to him that way. She had to go to him as Jesus' Messiah. And Jesus makes that abundantly clear that his response to her request has to be the response of that Lord, Son of God, and King of Israel that Nathanael has already claimed. And it's not one that he apparently wants to take up at the moment. You see, Jesus says that his hour to do what Mary is requesting, that hour has not quite come yet. This language will be repeated as we go through the Gospels. We'll see it time and time again. And almost always the hour refers to that hour of glorification. Not in his crowning as the king of Israel and Judah. Not in his triumphant conquest of the enemies and oppressors of the Jews. But instead his glorification on the cross. His resurrection and exaltation. You see, his hour almost always refers to the new age that dawns first and foremost when the Son of God is hung upon a cross to die and to suffer in shame. Does anybody know the shame of this bridegroom more? See, Jesus says his hour hasn't become, has come, not come yet to start that task, to put himself in opposition to the religious authorities who will crucify him. To put himself in opposition to the Romans, emphasized and epitomized in Pilate, and all those countries that the Gentiles are represented in. See, that time has not come yet according to Jesus. But notice Mary's response. This is a commendation for her. She says, do whatever he tells you. To the servants. You see, in the face of this rebuff, in, this, in, the, in the face of this explanation that she must approach Jesus as Messiah, that she has to put up all of those other associations, she responds in faith. Could it have been any more difficult for any other individual in the history of the world than Mary to exercise this type of faith? To exercise this type of necessary distance between her own son 
You recall that Simeon had said in Luke chapter 2, when Mary had taken, her and Joseph had taken Jesus to the temple to be circumcised. Doing the responsible and dutiful thing of a Jewish mother, eight days, her firstborn son in the temple for circumcision, Simeon grabs that baby and he looks at it and he says, this is the Messiah, Mary and Joseph. This is the one that I've been waiting for that will precede my death. Notice what he said, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Read that again. You see it, he's looking, he's holding that baby and he's looking in the eyes of his mother and his father. And he says, a sword will pierce through your soul own soul also. It's almost as if when Jesus is saying this to her, he's saying, Mother, don't you know what that hour means? Don't you know that if we start this now, then that sword is unsheathed. It's taken out and it's pointed at your breast. Because it means that it's going to run through me. And in faith, she says, do whatever he tells you. If we could have such faith, such belief. But as Jesus is wont to do in this gospel, he doesn't stop there. You see, Mary, she's got the key. She has that belief. She has that faith. She puts it in the keyhole and she turns it. And so Jesus calls for these six stone water jars, which are for the purpose of Jewish rites of purification. He calls them to be filled up. These stone water jars would have been used for ritual and ceremonial washings. More regularly, according to rabbinical and Pharisaic law, more regularly you would have expected these type of ritual washings not to be done out of pots, but actually to be done in bathing. And you would have wanted living running water. For whatever reason, this family does not take that type of washing, that ritual washing, as serious as some of the Pharisees or those in Judea would have. Perhaps that's something of a slight against them, or perhaps at the very least that's foreshadowing that the people that Jesus is going to associate with are not necessarily going to be the Pharisees. They're going to be in opposition or juxtaposition to them. Those people like Nicodemus and others. Nonetheless, they would be used for ritual washing. They were meant to be used for ritual purity. If you were to engage in any type of celebration that caused you to be set apart, sanctified for proper worship and honor of the Almighty God, you would have to go to this clean water that had been set apart and you would have to wash and bathe. They probably had to do such for this very ceremony. But notice that these jars are empty. In this scenario now, when the wine is needed, when the celebration must continue, when shame and status are on the line, notice that these jars of stone cannot help at all. They are barren, they are empty, and they are useless. So Jesus fills them. He fills six of them. Does that number six ring any bells? When we think of six in the Bible, we normally think of what, kiddos, When you think of six, what do you normally think of? Creation, that's right. 
We think of creation. Six is generally always, I know that's right, Josh gave a little boom, Liam, right? Six days of creation. And in this case, if we're looking at the symbolism behind this, these six dry, dusty, useless stone water jars are filled to the brim. Those six days have passed. The sun has come up, has come up. There's a new day dawning. Did we not sing this just, just recently? The sun comes, there's a new day dawning. We are at the tip of that Sabbath point. Six days have passed. The seventh is the Sabbath, right? It's that day of rest, that day of celebration, the day of the coming of the Messiah. When the promised rest and reconciliation between God and his creation that had been marred, had been destroyed by sin, right? it's represented in that seventh day. And it's represented in these six jars that are now filled to the brim. See, those old days and even those old Jewish customs of purity, they have had their time. They have had their use. But there's a new time that is dawning with the inauguration of the word. There is a new creation that is coming. And is there any better way to represent that new creation than taking that water, which couldn't make anybody at that time sated, which couldn't make anybody clean, and to turn it from something it was into something new, a new creation, water into wine. Because that, in fact, is what happens. When water is drawn, whether it's from a well or it's from those pots, when that water is drawn and taken to the master of the feast, secretly now, only the servants and those closest to Jesus know this. When it's taken to him, immediately what he sips is the choicest of wines. It's not just pretty good stuff. It's not top shelf stuff. It's the best stuff. This is like wine that had been aged for 50 to 100 years. It's like wine that came out of Burgundy, France. It's the choicest. It's the best wine. And notice that we don't see that this wine had been diluted. Normally you would expect some type of dilution of wine. But we don't necessarily see that here. They just take that ladle, however they got it, and they present it to the master of the feast. And in surprise, he calls the bridegroom before him. Bridegroom who probably at this point has been shaking in his boots who is in fear, whose celebration has been ruined. Can you imagine the angst this man must have felt? He probably was looking around at his guests, who the text seems to indicate didn't just drink the wine, but probably drank too much of it, right? I mean, that's the language that's actually used. They were probably too liberal with their supping of this wine. And so he's looking around at some of his intoxicated guests, some who are having a good time, and all he can think of is that my life is ruined. And the master of the feast calls him. And you can imagine, he's, he's probably thinking, oh, this guy, what's he going to say? Was he able to solve my problem? Is it shame? Is it blame? Is it some type of legal um, liability here? What, what is he going to say to me? And instead he says, hey, you're good. Not only are you good, this is the best wine. This provision is over and above anything that anybody would have expected. Not only did you serve good wine to begin with, but you have kept the best wine until last so that everybody at this feast, not just those who have drunk too much, but those who have been properly reserved and properly pacing themselves so that they can enjoy this to the fullest 
as well. This celebration has only gotten better. And this was the first of Jesus' sign in which he did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Why this sign? Where is the glory in this? How does this show us the Messiah? Well, I think the first thing we can say is that when Jesus reveals his glory, John will always use this, and we'll have recourse to keep coming back to this, to show that he reveals the very face of God itself. He reveals the identity of his father, the character of his father. And in that character, we see a fullness of grace and truth, love and mercy, that can only be found from that font. And so the first place that that grace and truth, love and mercy is directed is that a simple bridegroom. Isn't this like the father? Isn't this the one that God's word describes as care for the sparrows and the birds of the air who clothes the flowers of the field, who knows every single hair on our heads? See, this bridegroom was not unimportant to Jesus. But he represents and reveals the glory of the Father in taking care to set this man on a path of peace rather than one of shame and sorrow. That's the first way Jesus' glory is revealed. And it's something that speaks to us as well. Little acts of care and kindness and concern. They don't go unnoticed. They're not too meager. And as a matter of fact, they represent the love and care of our Father. If you would know the mark of a man or a woman, know what that person does in private when nobody's watching and there's no recognition or status to be gained. And in this case, remember, this is a private miracle. It's revealed. But there's another layer to this, as there will be in John. There is another layer to this miracle. Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 9, equates the day of the coming of the Messiah like this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people we will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken it will be said on that day behold this is our God we have waited for him that he might save us this is the Lord we have waited for us waited for him let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation You see, this is the next layer to this. Is that by turning this water into wine, Jesus is saying that his hour has come. That his hour has come. And it is an hour full of richness and plenty. An hour full of exceeding expectations. Of such blessing and grace that it flows out from the mountains, watering all the lands of the earth. It is a time of rejoicing for the salvation that comes 
in this Messiah. But it is one more thing as well. Not only does it reveal God's care and kindness in Jesus to those who we might overpass, we might overlook. Not only does it show that Jesus' ministry of salvation has begun now, has officially started, and it is a ministry that is meant to bring in such joy and gladness because salvation follows it. But it also shows us something about the nature of this Messiah. Jesus starts his ministry at a wedding. He saves a bridegroom. He begins a celebration because he is a bridegroom. Jesus is a bridegroom. You see, Jesus was also preparing through his ministry a feast. He was also saving up, counting his cost, preparing that time in which he would invite his bride to join him in the celebration, in which he would call peoples, both Jewish and Gentile, to come and to sup with him. But the cost of this abundance of wine, the cost of this celebration, wouldn't be monetary. It would be his own life. See, this is the supper of the Lamb of God who comes away to take who comes to take away the sins of the world. The bridegroom wouldn't just have to fear shame or loss of status or even legal liability. The bridegroom would have to face death itself. So that this feast, this celebration that's even anticipated here might actually occur. It would be an eternal feast. It would be a feast of never-ending abundance. And it would be a feast in which all are welcome to come if they have faith. But that hour in which the feast was instituted, it would be a feast of cost. And notice Jesus' disciples, notice their response. Upon seeing his glory revealed in these ways, upon seeing their Savior, their Messiah, manifest himself in this manner, and looking at the depths of it as we've just described it, they believed in him. They were the first guests. They might not fully have understood what this Messiah would do, but they were the first guests. Now I ask you, as we have the table prepared before us, this in many ways is a wedding feast. It is a banquet that Christ instituted on the night that he was betrayed, on the eve of his own hour of suffering and persecution. And I ask you now, do you believe? Are you like his disciples in that wedding at Cana thousands of years ago, looking in the face of their Messiah believing. Because it's that belief, it's that faith, which calls you to enter in and sup. Let's pray. This has been a message from Justin Estrada, Senior Pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, a congregation of the PCA located in the heart of Kingsville, Maryland. 